Here we are again, tangentially speaking, coming at you from rainy Portland, Oregon. If you hear thumping in the background, that's my landlady's new fucking puppy. If you are going, if you rent a place that you live above and you're thinking of buying a puppy, you might want to mention that to the guy downstairs who's trying to write a fucking book. That's all I'm saying. You might just want to mention it. As opposed to, oh, did you hear I got a puppy? Yeah, yeah, I heard you got a fucking puppy. Definitely heard that. Anyway, uh, before I rant any further, let me play you a little a little ditty here. Um, it's called uh, Perfect For Me. is originally written by Ron Pope. And it's being sung and played by my friend Alex from Vancouver. You sit in bathroom and you shave your junk I sit on the bed right now and I sing you a song it's always so easy cause we know how love stays strong if I can make you happy then this is where I belong I'd just like to say I'm thankful that you're here with me I know you too well to say you're perfect But you'll see, oh my sweet love You're perfect for me You know my dirty secrets And I know all of yours I promise I won't tell anyone about your 70s lesbian porn. I wish that I had kept my bush so that you could dine on Minge. If it would make you happy, I will wear a pussy wig. And I know you too well to say you're perfect. But you'll see, oh my sweet love, you're perfect for me. I know your dirty secrets and you know all of mine. You weren't too thrilled to learn that anal sex is on my bucket list. I wish you were a bit more Greek so you could do me in the can. You said, baby, if it makes you happy, Mike can be your backdoor man. And even after all this time, there is no love I'll ever find in this whole wide world as GGG as you. I gave you an FFM fantasy, and in return you gave an 
MMDP Cause some things are just better when there's three Oh yes indeed Silk stockings for CFNM It's not as kinky as BDSM I know we're old fashioned cause we still watch porn on DVD And it's not even free And I'd just like to say Thankful you're not into poo. And I know you too well to say you're perfect, but you will see, oh my sweet love, you're perfect. Oh my love, I swear you're perfect. Cause I know if I asked you, would LMNOP on me? There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a realistic love song. How often do you hear that? I played um, a tune called I Want to Fuck Your Sister uh, a couple of weeks ago in the the hip-hop mashup, which is also a a pretty realistic love song, but um, I think this one covers more of the bases and has some uh, a lot of very memorable lines as opposed to just that one. This week's uh, guest is Dan Carlin, who is, as many of you will know, the host of an amazing podcast called Hardcore History, and he's got another one called Common Sense, which honestly I haven't had a chance to listen to yet, Um, but Hardcore History is a masterpiece. Uh, Hardcore History is like sitting down to a gourmet feast with someone who both understands and deeply appreciates food. So your experience of what you're consuming is so much richer because you're with this person who's explaining to you what what you what this is, where it came from, how it got to be this way, why those combinations of flavor work so well, who thought of it, how you know, everything experience is enriched by an understanding of history. And what Dan Carlin does is he shares his passion and his hunger, his his intellectual hunger for understanding how all these things fit together and what makes them so goddamn delicious. And um, it, it's a wonderful podcast. So I really highly recommend Hardcore History. Um, we talk about the the series he did about the uh, the the Mongols and the 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 empire that included Genghis Khan and and. Um, uh, the other Khan, Kublai Khan, and, and the whole Khan family uh, for centuries. Um, and we also talk about Daniele Bolelli at the beginning. You'll hear uh, we're referencing Daniele. So if you don't know who that is, um, he's also a podcaster. Everybody's got a podcast these days. Daniele Bolelli's podcast is called The Drunken Taoist. He's a martial arts uh, expert. He's also a historian, and he's Italian. So if you get turned on by uh, suave Italian accents, you definitely are going to want to check out the drunken Taoist. I've been on his show a few times, and he's been on this show. So uh, if you've uh, been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know who Daniele is. So a couple of things I wanted to mention before we uh, turn this over to, to Dan to the conversation I had with Dan Carlin. I had a, a strange interaction this week um, with someone on Facebook, and I think it's worth talking about because it's a, a sort of a, it's a, it's an exchange, it's a dialogue that I think is happening a lot in the United States these days. And 
I think it's got um, very serious repercussions. So it's worth examining and thinking about a little bit, especially because I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are are in their 20s and they're thinking about when you're in your 20s, you're not only thinking about what's going on, you're also thinking about how you think, um, ideally. You're learning how to think critically. You're learning how to question things. You're learning how to, to take things apart and see how they work, uh, which is why Dan Carlin is, and teachers like him are so important, especially at that age. Uh, they, they bring an appeal to people who are older in terms of their passion and the, the knowledge and all that. But when you're younger, what's really important is learning how to think. It's like, it's like with a, a musical instrument. You learn how to play it before you worry about what you're going to play, right? As long as, as uh, Tao Ruspoli said when he uh, met um, uh, the guitarist for the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards, when he was a kid and Keith Richards said to him, learn flamenco guitar because if you can play flamenco, you can play anything, Right. So intellectually, that's what we want to do as well. You want to learn how to think really well. And if you do that, and I'm not just, that's not being smart, okay? Learn, knowing how to think is not the same thing as being smart. You can be very smart and have no fucking clue how to think. And in fact, that happens a lot um, because you never have to learn because you can just wing it, you know? Um, in the book I'm writing now, there's a whole chapter devoted to how really smart people get things completely wrong, even though they've got access to the data, they've got access to the information they need, and they still get it wrong. Um, and so, and I think it's a, it's a flaw in their critical thinking skills. So anyway, the conversation was that there was an article written by a guy who was promoting a book he's just written. The author's name is Melvin Connor. He's an anthropologist. Um, who I've read quite a bit of, actually. Um, and his new book is called Women After All, Sex, Evolution, and the End of Male Supremacy. And here's the first paragraph of his article. Women are not equal to men. They are superior in many ways, and in most ways that will count in the future. It's not just a matter of culture or upbringing. It's a matter of chromosomes, genes, hormones, and nerve circuits. It's not mainly because of how experience shapes women, but because of intrinsic differences in the body and brain. That's the first paragraph. Um, and if you look on the Amazon reviews of people who've read the book, apparently what the book is arguing is that women are, as that paragraph suggests, superior to men, biologically superior to men. And um, now, okay. Is that an argument that can be made? Probably, but I think it's a spurious argument. I think it's an argument designed to attract attention more than it is to, um, to illuminate the issues. So I linked to this on Facebook and Twitter, and on the Facebook um, thing, I got some shit from someone who says... Um, you know, basically they're disappointed in me because in the headline I said, imagine if this were reframed as blacks and whites or even if the genders were reversed, right? So if that first paragraph said men are superior to women uh, because the, of the lack of hormones and or different hormones and better nerve circuits and yada, 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 right? 
Now, of course, that argument has been made historically, just like the argument that whites are superior to blacks has been made historically over the centuries, uh, that the uh, the English are superior to the Irish, that, um, you know, everyone's superior to Jews, uh, you know, that the Japanese are superior to the Chinese. All these arguments have been made historically. And my point in saying, imagine if this were reversed, was that if you wrote an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education, as this guy did, that opened saying whites are superior to blacks because blah, 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 that they wouldn't publish it, right? That would be immediately recognized as absurd and offensive and and dangerous. Um, but if you're saying women are superior to men, apparently it's offensive to equate that with any other framing of that same argument. In other words, well, I'll I'll read what, what she said. She said, the difference is context. Of course, the article is inflammatory and non-feminist. However, saying just imagine this is about men is nonsense because these two genders are not on equal footing in society. She continues, to pretend that attacking a privileged and powerful group is equivalent to attacking a marginalized group is to ignore history. In other words, she says, it's wrong to lynch anyone, but when an African-American gets lynched, it's especially heinous, given the historical use of lynching to terrorize and pacify black communities. Similarly, for an opinion piece to disparage a dominant gender is not nice, but to disparage women is to add another drop to the tsunami of messages of inferiority aimed at women daily. Now, here's the thing. I agree with that. It's true. There is a different historical context. The problem is, are we talking about a way of thinking, a way of arguing, a way of behaving, or are we talking about who is doing this thinking about whom? In other words, are we talking about the game or are we talking about the players? I think... What's important is to talk about the game. Now, someone can come back to me and say, well, of course you do because you're a white heterosexual man in a position of privilege and power and yada, 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 and that reinforces your worldview or something like that. But I think that objectively we can say if it's wrong to oppress someone, if it's wrong to argue that one group is biologically superior to another group, that's going to do more to advance human equality than it is to approach these things individually and say, it's wrong to argue men are superior to women, but when you argue women are superior to men, we have to you know, take into account all the blah, 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 and, and see this and see that, and it's offensive that you would say it's the same thing. I don't know. I mean, this gets down to the same thing where black lives matter, right? Everybody was saying black lives matter, and then some people said well, all lives matter, and then that became offensive, or that was taken as offensive. Now, how is it offensive to say all lives matter? How is it offensive to say cops should not shoot anyone unless it's absolutely necessary, whether they're black or white? I know most of the people who get shot by cops are black. I know that. And I'm not denying that. But it's still wrong to shoot anybody. Right. The, the homeless guy in Albuquerque who was the cops came and threw a flash bomb at him and then shot him in the back when he was running away. That dude was white. And what happened there was as wrong as can possibly be. 
the fact that that happens 10 times to a black person for every one time it happens to a white person, I that's relevant in a different conversation. But in terms of this conversation where we're saying it's what's wrong, what we're what we're talking about here is cops killing people for no fucking reason, then all lives matter, including black lives, definitely. And I think this gets into a lot of stuff about, uh, you know, terrorism. Uh, what's the difference between a terrorist and a hero? You know, if they're both blowing innocent people up. Well, the only difference is the hero is on our side. The hero's in an army. A terrorist doesn't have an army. But they're still blowing people up. They're still dropping bombs or planting bombs. They're still shooting people from rooftops. So what's the difference? If you accept this idea that you have to include the historical context uh, and that that including it changes the value of these different things, then in most cases, the terrorists are right because the soldiers are working for the oppressive government that's occupying the land. I mean, definitely the terrorists in the Middle East are right because they're shooting at Americans who have no fucking business being in their country, who've occupied, invaded and occupied their country and killed unknown hundreds of thousands of innocent people in their country, dropping bombs everywhere and leaving their radioactive bullets strewn all over the fucking place forever. Well, then those guys have every right to blow our guys up. They're not terrorists, right? So if you accept this, well, you got to look at the historical context, then it leads you into a rat hole where you can't just say it's wrong to kill innocent people. I don't give a fuck who's doing it. Since this episode is about history, let's talk about how this pertains to the greatest liberation movements of the 20th century, which are arguably the end of British control of India. Uh, spearheaded by Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela, and the the end of apartheid in South Africa, and the civil rights movement in the United States. What do all three of those things have in common? I would argue that what all three of them have in common is that the leadership understood and leveraged the power of renunciating violence as opposed to renunciating those who are using violence against them. In other words, Gandhi is against colonialism, not just this particular case of colonialism where the British are uh, raping the subcontinent. Uh, uh, Nelson Mandela is against apartheid, against that sort of racial segregation and uh, and exploitation of people, not particularly against the Boers or against de Klerk or whomever is in power at that particular moment. And the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King is looking at that and saying, okay, what we're against is racism. We're against forced segregation. We're against the fact that blacks are subhuman in this society, that blacks are not receiving the same rights and the same benefits as everyone else. And you're treating us as if we, we don't deserve those rights. We're against that behavior, those institutions. 
we're not necess- we're not it's not about us versus these particular white people because we're going to die they're going to die the whole thing's it's like a whirlpool the water keeps changing but the pattern remains and it's the pattern that's the problem not the individuals who make up that pattern and until we understand that i think we're powerless to really make any great insights or great changes in history and one of the really interesting things about those movements Uh, If you look at Nelson Mandela, you look at Gandhi, you look at Martin Luther King, all three of them were inspired and motivated, and and we could even say that that their thinking was in many ways triggered by a single essay called Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. Now, you probably have heard of him as the guy who wrote Walden. Uh, In the 1840s, he wandered off into the woods and lived alone in a cabin by Walden Pond for a year and wrote a book about it. Um, He's sort of seen as the, um, you know, one of the progenitors of this uh, individualism. And and he was also a real kind of hippie in his own way. Uh, His idea was, I want to understand life. I'm young. I think he was in his 20s when he did this. And he's like, okay, I want to really understand life before I get caught up in all these traps and all this bullshit and, you know, the job and the wife and the kids and the whole, the whole, uh, the nightmare, the complete nightmare, as somebody called it. Um, before I get caught up in that, I want to really look at my life. I want to, I want to reduce it to its simplest um, elements. I think he said something like, I want to drive it into a corner and really look at it. And then when I've looked at it, uh, then I'll make the decisions on how I live my life. In any case, he also wrote this essay called Civil Disobedience, and that was about slavery. He refused to pay taxes unless the government would guarantee him that none of his tax money would be used to perpetuate slavery. So what happened? He went to prison. So there he is in prison, and his great friend uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a very famous intellectual at the time, came to pay his bail and get him out. And the story is that Emerson was standing outside the cell, and he said to him, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Henry said, Ralph, what are you doing out there? Now, my point is Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, all read this essay called Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. I'd encourage you to do it as well. It's 20 pages. It's nothing, but it's an essay that changed the course of history. Because what he said was, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but the point of the essay is that by refusing to participate in structures of violence and oppression, we undermine them. By fighting them on the same terms or using the same tools like violence, we perpetuate them further. And this is essential. This is essential. Look beyond the players to the structure of the game. This is, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. It's amazing how threatened people are by open marriage, open ethical, no bullshit, everything's on the table. That freaks them out. They like better when you're cheating. I have a friend who's in an open marriage, and he was telling me how hard it is to find women. Women are happy to 
to to sleep with him if they believe he's cheating on his wife, if they think he's lying. But the minute he says, no, no, my wife knows all about this. She's cool. It doesn't matter. Everything's all right. We share everything. Then the women are like, whoa, no, I don't want to be involved in that. And it goes the other way, too. This isn't about I'm not dissing women. This is goes the other way as well. People are comfortable with what they know. And they get very threatened. They'd rather have you cheat at the game than question the legitimacy of the game, is my point. Anyway, that's how I feel about this. And and I tried um, arguing this point, but it it seems that it's not accepted. I mean, maybe there's something I'm missing, but... uh, you know, in the end, uh, we never, never really uh, arrived at a an agreement. I, she she linked to an article called "Not All Men: A Brief History of Every Dude's Favorite Argument," and this is one of these uh, articles. This is uh, from Time Magazine. If you want to read it, you can just Google "Not All Men: A Brief History of Every Dude's Favorite Argument." Uh, you know, which is interesting because basically it's like, okay, men are rapists and then someone says well not all men are rapists and that's apparently offensive um you know if you say not all white people are racist did i say racist before or rapists whatever so if you if you say not everyone in that group is uh guilty of what you're claiming apparently that's not cool then you're mansplaining or whatever the fuck it is these days. But I'm sorry. I'm a white heterosexual man. I, I, there was a time when I apologized for that, actually, when I was in my early 20s. And I was in a women's studies class and, and I was feeling very guilty about the horrendous things that white heterosexual men had done over the centuries. And, uh, it really made it hard for me to function because I felt implicated in these things that I, of course, had not participated in. Um, and it, it was a difficult period of my life. I was reading Andrea Dworkin, who uh, wrote a book called Man, Women Hating, I think it's called. or yeah, uh, And she and, and Kat, uh, McKinnon, I think her name was, they're sort of they started this uh, very militant feminist movement that we're seeing sort of resurging now, I think, on American campuses. And the problem is that, you know, as I've said before about hippies, I really hate fundamentalist hippies um, because not only are they fundamentalists, I mean, if they'd been born in the, you know, the teens or the 20s in Germany, they'd be brown shirts or Nazis because they're just going with the flow. They're not thinking it through. I I really resent people who have co-opted feminism because I consider myself a feminist. If a feminist is someone who says men and women should have the same access to to right, they should have the same rights, same access to resources, to government programs, whatever, jobs, then I'm a fucking feminist for sure. But if a feminist is someone who says it's cool to argue that women are biologically superior to men, but... It's not cool to argue that men are biologically superior to women. Then I'm not a feminist because I think the way to achieve equality is through equality, not through shaming and you know shouting people down for mansplaining. But that's just me.
In other news, a friend of mine um, who had been a vegan for a long time just gave it up and uh, sent me an, an email that was kind of funny. He said, uh, we just gave up veganism a few weeks ago. After a year of philosophizing about it, we decided to reenter the food chain with an eye toward free-range, humanely raised, grass-fed, organic, local, gluten-free, progressive, never-touched-by-Republicans, open-minded meat. He says, I got to tell you, after 12 years without it, when I started back in, I couldn't stop. For the first few weeks, I was like, I was eating meat like an ex-con eats pussy. <laughs> there you go. Now, that's probably offensive to some people, but what are you going to do? I had a friend who was a vegetarian, not a vegan, but he was a vegetarian for, I don't know, 20 years, I think. He was a, he played jazz bass. You know, he was a very good bass player. He lived in Spain. And uh, he used to get these gigs where American musicians would come over to do a tour in Spain. You know, they'd play these village music festivals and they'd hire him into the band because he could both translate and play bass. So um, he was sort of part guide, part bass player. And they were, he told me the story, they were in a, in a little village in Andalusia in the south of Spain in the, the Sierra, Sierra Nevadas, I think they're called. The mountains down there and um and the guys were in a tapas bar and <clears throat> tapas is everyone knows what tapas are but the word tapas actually is interesting it, it means to cover and uh because they they would serve this sweet wine down there fino and the it would attract flies so they would put a little saucer over the wine glass and then it just became customary to put a little food on the saucer. And that's how tapas were born. Tapar is to cover. Anyway, so they were having tapas. And one was particularly fantastic. And they said to my friend, his, his name was Chris. They said, Chris, what, what is this? Ask the guy what this is. Chris asked the guy. And he says, oh, that, that's a ham from a wild boar that I shot on that mountain right over there with my bow and arrow last summer, and then I salted it over the winter, and, you know, here's this. So he translated it for these American dudes, and they were like, holy shit, this is incredible, man. Spain, you know, you got to love Spain. Chris, you got to try one of these. And he says, no, no, I'm a vegetarian. You guys know that. And they, yeah, but Chris, come on. I mean, the guy shot it with a bow over on that mountain right there. I mean, he cured it himself. I mean, come on, dude. No, no, no. Finally, Chris like, all right, all right, I'll try one. He tried one. Boom. 20 years of vegetarianism, over. Like, big time over. He became obsessed with meat. And the first thing was octopus. The dude was all about octopus. He was calling me up like, oh, I found this new octopus restaurant and we got to go to do this. And I met these guys that are going to take me octopus fishing. And, and he like all this lore about octopus. And then he decides he's going to get an octopus tattoo on his right shoulder. And so it, with like tentacles and shit so that when he plays bass, it'll look like it's moving. And I Chris, please don't do that. That's a really dumb idea, man. An octopus fucking tattoo. That's really, don't do that. And oh, no, dude, I'm going to do it. And so he went to this other friend of mine who's a tattoo artist and they did it. In fact, I was hanging out with them. We were all hanging out smoking weed while he got his tattoo. And it is the coolest fucking tattoo you've ever seen. It is so beautiful. And he's right. It The way it moves when he plays is really nice. But, of course, 
The problem with these things is you get one tattoo and apparently, I don't know what it is, but you got to get more. So he went hog wild with this thing, literally. He got a wild boar on one of his thighs. He's got a, a blue lobster on his other shoulder. He's got a clove of garlic on his foot and uh, there's some other shit like rice. And uh, he's like a walking fucking paella, this guy at this point. So I don't know. I, what's what's my advice there? If you're going to get an octopus tattoo, stop at the octopus. All right, that's enough for me. Uh, thanks to Carsey Blanton for Smoke Alarm. Check her out, carseyblanton.com. You can download any of her music you want and just drop a little change in her tip jar. Speaking of tip jars, thank you to all of you who have um, signed on to fundwhatyoulove.com, uh, funding the podcast. That's really nice. It's nice to know there's a certain amount of money coming in every month. I can sort of plan things, maybe take a trip, do this, interview certain people. I've got something planned in San Francisco, interesting, uh, interestingly, a drug smuggler. I hope to have him on soon. Anyway, um, thanks for that. If you want to support the podcast, fundwhatyoulove.com. You'll see it there. You can buy me a beer, buy me a coffee, whatever. Whatever works for you. I appreciate it. And... Um, T-shirts. Mom's sending a lot of T-shirts to Australia. You Australians are kicking it. Thank you. And uh, also the military people. I mentioned last week that I was interested in uh, talking to somebody with a military background. Got a lot of interesting emails from some great people. I haven't responded to you. I'm sorry. I'm sort of waiting to, to see you know what I hear and, and try to figure out how to put it together. And I'm also moving my office this week, so it's a chaotic time. But I will respond to all you military people. Thank you for reaching out. I really appreciate that and um, <clears throat> the stories. And it's interesting. You guys are all so cool because every one of you say the same thing, which is, well, I'm sure you're being contacted by other people who've had much more intense or interesting experiences than I have. So, you know, don't worry about it if you uh, don't get back to me and completely cool, self-effacing people, which, you know, as much shit as I give military and all that shit I was saying about what's the difference between a soldier and a terrorist and all that, there is a, there's a decency in military culture, which, um, confuses me. And it's something that, that I want to, that I've seen from outside and, uh, and I respect. So thank you for all you people for writing. Um, and what else can I tell you? I think that's it. The, thanks again for the uh, the opening music. That's uh, basinandrangeband.com. The song is called Le Pigeon, I think. And uh, of course, once again, Alex for that little ditty, that realistic love song. I'd wear a pussy wig for you. That's That's love, ladies and gentlemen. Here's Dan. Thanks for doing this, man. Oh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I have no idea how long we're going. I have no idea what we're talking about. We're just going to roll with the punches. Exactly. <laughs> Works for me. Uh, the, my, my podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, so feel free to just wander wherever your, uh, your nose takes you. Oh, boy, I'm not sure I could confine myself under the best of conditions anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I have to say, uh, and you probably are in the same situation, uh, ironically, you're so busy making podcasts, you don't have a lot of time to listen to them. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't commute. I don't really drive anywhere. And I write for a living, so I can't really be listening to people talk while I'm working. 
yours is one of the only podcasts I really make a point to listen to. Oh, I, <laughs> thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my wife and I uh, took a long road trip down to San Francisco. I'm in Portland, as you may know. And uh, we took this long uh, road trip down to San Francisco, and Daniele Bolelli had implored me to listen to your podcast, and he suggested I start with the Genghis Khan uh, series, or the you know the whole Mongol series. And uh, we're driving down, we listened to one or two of the the episodes, and my wife, with whom I've been married 15 years now, said to me, did I ever tell you that my mother's favorite historical figure was Genghis Khan? <laughs> The things you find out after you're married, right? <laughs> exactly. My mother-in-law is a fan of Genghis Khan. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? I think that should have given you a clue right away. Maybe you were entering into the wrong kind of relationship. <laughs> it was 15 years too late. I was up to my neck already. Yeah, I love Daniele Bellelli, by the way. I, uh, I'm, I'm, he's, he's pestering me to get down to Southern California as soon as possible. I'm going to try my, my best. He's a lot of fun. He is. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah. And I, I actually had his mother on my podcast. And I know his father is a famous, uh, isn't he philosopher in Italy? Oh, is he? I didn't know that. Oh, fa- and I think I think really famous. Wow. Yeah, wow. I think he's a. I think he's actually a very. I think there's a uh, stuff online and video stuff and everything. Oh, well, that would. You explain. could definitely see his son's looks and his father for sure. <laughs> well, we he's been on my show like three or four times, and one of the times. He was talking about how he was born when his mother was, I think, 16 or 17 or something. And she took him all over the world. They traveled. You know, she was sort of a a bohemian. And listening to these stories, I just thought, man, you know, his mother must be really something. And I had seen her in passing through the the little compound where they live there. And I said, do you think your mother would be willing to talk to me and, you know, to be on the podcast? And he asked her and she was fantastic. It was really interesting to sort of see that whole situation from her perspective. And she spoke English as well? Oh, yeah. She lives there. She's been in the States for a long time now. She's uh, sort of an activist in the American Indian movement. Ah, okay. Well, that explains a few things because I know Daniele is very uh, interested in that as well. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So when you're down there, say hi to his mom. She's also <laughs> strikingly beautiful. Really? I will do that. And only 16 years older than Daniele. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So listen, I, I guess the first thing I, I want to say is, uh, you know, I've taught, I, I imagine you've taught, uh, if you haven't taught officially, you certainly teach through your podcast. And the thing that's so wonderful about your podcast is that your passion for your subject comes through loud and clear. I'm sure that is, uh, you know, an explanation for a lot of the popularity of the podcast. What is it about history that gets you so riled up? I'm one of those people that just gets my mind blown on a regular basis by history. And I think that people who love history, uh, just my own theory here, have the ability to, to read the printed word, for example, and and be able to more than most people imagine themselves in those situations. Mm. Uh, I've always been a halfway decent communicator, and so maybe what I'm able to do on the podcast is to then share that feeling that you normally have to be a little bit of a history freak to have, and and bring people who can't do that just from reading the printed word and, and give them that same experience a little bit. I don't even want to claim that kind of credit, but that's really where 
I get my enthusiasm from. I mean, I really have the ability to at least imagine as well as anyone not living in these time periods can, um, you know, what it's like in some of these stories. A little, like I said, this is all a little bit better than the most, maybe. I mean, we can never get into the shoes of people raised in different cultures and different environments with different expectations. But I do think that if you couldn't do that, it would be hard to get very enthused about history. Yeah, so it's an act of imagination, uh, informed imagination. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I have the same feeling. I, I studied literature in college, and I think my passion for literature was the same thing, that it was, you know, when I was reading a, a Joseph Conrad novel, it was very easy to imagine myself going up the Congo River on that boat, you know? And uh, and I think for a lot of people, it's just maybe because of difficulty reading, you know, there could be a cognitive glitch or something, but it it's much harder for them to sort of put themselves in that uh you know uh sort of what's the word uh out of body experience you know where you sort of project yourself into that world but then of course it is imagination too right because we're filling in all these missing gaps do you ever worry that that your your capacity to project yourself may include some sort of bias that you're unaware of Oh, I think absolutely. And I think simply, listen, this is the number one thing I think that historiography, which is the practice of writing and making history, uh, tries to teach the people who are doing it is how do you filter out first your own biases and then how do you filter out the biases of your sources? Right. Um, one of the things we try to do in the podcast a lot uh, is to use analogies and metaphors and things that help, you know, when you, when you can turn around and say something like, um, this story is a little like this, and then people can say, "Oh, I see what you're saying." And then, but right there, you're already introducing something that's not quite the same as something you're already worrying about transmitting incorrectly. So, yes, obviously, you have to be careful. And I think the first thing that helps you be careful is admitting right off the bat that, for example, trying to get in the shoes of a Republican Roman from 2000. 200 years ago is impossible. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, can, <laughs> Let's try. can you try to understand a little bit what it might be like <laughs> yeah. knowing that it's impossible? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know how much you know about my work, but I'm writing a book uh, largely about prehistory right now. So I'm every day trying to project myself, you know, five times further back in history than than Rome and uh, for which there's nothing written, which makes it even even trickier. So the reason I ask that is because that's something I'm dealing with all the time. I'm constantly wondering to what extent my own biases are, uh, you know, misinforming my interpretations of things. Isn't DNA evidence starting to make a huge difference in that field? Um, well, it, it sheds light in some limited areas, you know, like, for example, uh, mitochondrial DNA, which passes only through the female's. Uh, can demonstrate that women seem to move much further away from their place of birth than males did. So that confirms the idea that our species is female exogamous, meaning that when we reach sexual maturity, the female leaves the natal group rather than the male, which we which is something we share with chimps and and bonobos, our two closest. Primate. But I was I was reading something once that was suggesting, and listen, this is way out of my field of understanding, so I could certainly be wrong. Um, but things like that there were uh, changes in DNA that occurred, for example, when people started using language. And so that they could begin now to, to figure out some sort of rough estimates when language began. Are you finding that that kind of stuff is helpful for what you're doing? 
Well, I'm not aware of the particular research you're talking about. It w- that would be very interesting because the advent of language is, is a much debated uh, topic, as is the advent of, of culture, you know. They look at things like um, jewelry and adorning um, uh, corpses when they're buried and things like that, or burial itself as as signs of the advent of culture. But, yeah, it's it's a very contentious area. Because prehistory is tough. The, prim- the primary sources aren't there, are they? No, no. But and, and, and also you've got the distortion of the secondary sources, as you referred to earlier. You've got people who have very clear agendas, uh, you know, sort of that comes through and what they choose to, to highlight or to ignore. And um, so, yeah, and, and this connects to your work a lot because one of the, the main debates is violence, you know, is – is violence something that's innate to our species and we've been in a state of constant warfare forever? Or is it something that's uh, more of a, a result of, of cultural uh, changes and a distortion in our behavior? Where do you come down on that? Do you have any? I remember you you quoted, I don't remember who it is, but history is the autobiography of a madman. I love that quote. Yeah, that's Alexander Hertz on the playwright, put it in the mouth of one of his characters. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and how, how obviously Russian is it to, <laughs> to look at it that way? It's wonderful. The book is uh, called Before the Dawn. And I read it and I remember just being fascinated because you know, when you study history, they, they kind of started with writing and, 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 and maybe what we would call today urbanization. And anything that pushes back the ability to get realistic information from before that time, I mean, as you know, you, you move from what we call history into, into more archaeology and then anthropology, and you start getting into to things that haven't traditionally fallen into historical uh, expertise. And, and to push back those boundaries and start finding out you know, I'll give you an example. I, I've always wondered, you know, when you read someone like Tolkien and then you find out that Tolkien's view was he was discussing a world that existed before our current world, almost like it is history, but it's history before the flood, if you will, or something like that. I always find it fascinating to wonder, you know, is it possible that there could have been urbanization, say, before ancient Mesopotamia and, and whatnot? I mean, at what point do the things that we would use today to confirm that disappear from the historical record. I mean, in 5,000 years, look at what ISIS is doing in the Middle East, bulldozing ancient Assyrian cities. I mean, how, how long does that or the weatherization or everything else have to happen before you really almost lose any sort of evidence that it was even there? So it does, yeah. it does get you wondering that sometime between the dinosaurs and Mesopotamia, was there something interesting going on that we don't know about? Yeah, and and another factor in all that is the fact that um, the uh, the sea level has gone up about four hundred feet. I think absolutely. Uh, you know, since seventy thousand years ago with the out of Africa uh, migration. So, and and it's quite clear that people would have moved out of Africa and spread around the world along the coastlines because that's where the food is. You've got uh, good visibility to hide from predators or to see them coming. There are a lot of reasons for people to be on the coastline, and all those coastlines are way underwater now. So uh, it's interesting. And then they, what happens is we find these uh, these archaeological sites that are outliers because they're away from the, the former coastline. So they might be hunting parties or they might be people who are driven into the mountains for some reason. In any case, they're atypical, but that's all that's available. So we take that and then we extrapolate from that. And I think uh, end up with a completely distorted vision of the whole world. 
the guy who was my senior thesis professor in college is an underwater archaeologist. Oh. And, and, and he has this wonderful world available to him because when you go underwater and you dive at these sites, you're seeing things that would be out in the open if they were on land and would have been picked over for hundreds and hundreds of years or just the stone reused or what have you. And so uh, I remember him telling us this is just this wealth of stuff literally right off the coastline that's just sitting there waiting to be discovered. It is it is funny to think that if you could drain the coastlines a little bit like a bathtub, what you would find just sitting right there in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing. I've got this idea for a book about... Uh things we know we don't know, right? Sort of playing off that Rumsfeld quote about the things we know. Yeah, and the, we know the known and, unknown. Yeah, right. exactly. And that's that's one of the prime examples I always think about. We know we don't know. We know that we don't have access to that knowledge uh, from all these sites that are along the coastline, and we know that's really important. And yet you rarely hear anybody talking about it or read about it in popular science books just because, you know, it's like the guy looking for his keys under the, the streetlight because that's where the light is, not where he happened to lose them, you know. <laughs> Strange. I like, I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking of analogies or, or – or, I don't know if it even counts as an analogy, but I remember in that – I think it was in the introduction of the Mongol series. You said something that, that really uh, made me admire you. You – you talked about, you said, if you want to write a best-selling book, I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> do you well, remember yeah, I know this? where you're going with this. <laughs> I've already got people uh, uh, pretending that they're going to write it and put me in the dedication. So, <laughs> so I think my safety would be at stake. <laughs> well, the, but you were right. I mean, just to fill in listeners of what we're talking about, you went on and you said, if you want, I think you were referring to uh, some recent scholars of the Mongols who have said, well, actually, they weren't that bad. They, there were a lot of good things they did. They established uh, trade routes and they made it safe for, for caravans to travel through Asia and et cetera, et cetera. And there were uh, more – you can talk about different uh, uh, things that they brought, cultural innovations that they brought to the world. And, you know, your point was, well, you know, the Nazis did a lot of interesting things, too, and advanced a lot of sciences, weapon, uh, weaponry and uh, tactical things and all. But it's verboten to talk about that because it's so recent. But history has a way of sort of removing the, the messiness in a way as things become more distant. We're allowed to look at other facets of these historical epochs that we're not really allowed to look at when they're close to us. I think you made it sound a lot more positive than, than I... Basically, it's the trade-offs of empire, right? The standard trade-offs of empire that, that have always been cited. For the, you know, uh, uh, if you were on the other side of the Roman Empire, they would say things like, you know, Rome created a wasteland and called it peace. But right. if you were on the Roman side, well, look at the trade routes that developed. Look at how you know the the life got better and the incomes were were raised and and more people were literate. And I mean, you could go on and on. My point about the Nazis and writing a book was that that time tends to make us forget the price you have to pay if you're a contemporary living through those eras for those benefits of empire. Um, Yes, the Nazis made great strides in rocketry, for example, which contributed to maybe 
one of, certainly one of the top ten human achievements of all time, right? Landing a man on the moon. There's a direct connection between that and, and German Nazi rocketry programs. But if you'd ask the people who had to die in the Holocaust as part of that, if that if that that bill was was worth the cost, um, they're going to say no. But of course, we who are benefiting from the moonshot and everything that will come afterwards, it's totally worth the cost to us. But we're like freeloaders at a dinner where we didn't have to pick up the check. Um, and, and that's that's a that's a typical dilemma that people find themselves in history all the time. The thing with the Mongols, what you're seeing now is standard revisionist history, which has gotten a bad name because people like to pretend that history doesn't change and that when you revise it, somehow you're screwing up with the truth, which, of course, as you know, is there, there is no such thing. You're continually revising the story based on new evidence, new interpretations. And let's be honest, what's fashionable? Because a new historian writing a book today can't just rewrite something from 40 years ago, even if nothing had changed. Their job is to find a new way to look at things and incorporate new pieces of the puzzle and flip it upside down and look at it differently. And the current fashion, because the Mongols are just one of those people that have been treated forever with a horrifying label. I mean, you know, they have a bad reputation if you go back 100 years ago. And it's very standard to turn around and say, well, you know, let's look at some of the good they did, because they did do good. But so did the Nazis. <laughs> and because we didn't have to live through, you know, the cost of, of the Mongols establishing their empire, it's easy to turn around and say, well, look at what they did for the trade routes. And, you know, Mongol law was somewhat tolerant, you know, comparatively and all that. Um, the, the point of the Nazi thing was to, was to suggest if you actually wrote a book today where you suggested that, they would be picketing outside your book signing, and I think probably rightfully so. At the same time, in 500 years, I imagine you can write that book and get away with it. And, and, and I find it fascinating how once everyone's dead and once everyone who knew anyone's dead and once the passions have cooled, they will re-examine the awful period of the Holocaust the same way we've examined or re-examined every other awful period in world history. Is, I don't know if that's sad or not, but maybe it's a defense mechanism. Imagine if we felt every horrible period in history as strongly as we feel the Holocaust now. We'd be living with a form of, you know, post-traumatic, cultural post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, from, from the Roman destruction of Celtic civilization still. Well, you know, there are psychologists who argue that we, we are living with a cultural post-traumatic stress syndrome. History is the autobiography of Matt. There you right? go. Yeah. <laughs> and that might be what drove him mad in the first place, right? Um, you know, what you're talking about there really brings me to a big question that I'm dealing with in, in the work I'm doing now, which is progress. You know, like we're talking about the Mongols did good things. So did the Nazis. So did, you know, whatever, settling the Wild West and killing all the Indians and et cetera, et cetera. But we're seeing those things as good largely because they contributed to where we are now. But is there anything inherent in where we are now that's necessarily good? In other words, do you believe in progress? Is Are we progressing as a species or, or is it more of a cyclical thing, as the Buddhists would say? This may be an eye of the beholder sort of question. Um, I, I'm going to suggest that, yes, if you're talking about progress in terms of of the ability of more people to live their life to the fullest, however they deem that, um, then I think that there's no question 
that more people have more of an impact and more choices. I mean, we're you know there are people who live in what we used to call the third world that are just as isolated from opportunity as people were in the past. But I would suggest that in the past, those numbers were infinitely higher as a percentage. You know, I mean, when you read history books, as the great science historian James Burke told me once, you're reading the top zero 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 one percent of people who had the ability to go to school or get any literacy or make any difference. And and what we've done as as a species over time is increase the pool of people who get to share in the glory that used to be even a smaller percentage. It's still a small percentage, I think, if you take it on a global level, but it is an ever-increasing um, percentage. Now, what fascinates me is that, you know, if you look at the past, it tends to have an almost bunny hop sort of rhythm to what we would call progress, you know, two steps forward, one step back. If we were looking at civilization like a stock market, I think you could say that we've been on an, a, a constant uptick since the Renaissance without any real downturns. Does that mean that it's a little like trying to start a cigarette lighter in the first couple of tries, you just get a spark and it doesn't start. And, you know, one spark that doesn't start represents the Bronze Age and then that falls and then another spark starts and that represents, and now we finally got the flame lit? Or are we just so far from the last time we took any steps back that we don't remember that that's a, a, a standard thing that we're going to see again? I don't have an answer to that, but I'm fascinated by the idea of society maybe taking a step back again someday. Imagine not understanding or not being as, as advanced technologically as your great-great-great-grandparents, for example. Well, we're, we're in a moment now where we're seeing a step back in terms of quality of life and uh, uh, certainly in the United States in terms of uh, uh, retirement security, you know, uh, income disparity, all these sorts of measures of of progress that we've looked at in the 20th century since World War II, at least, that uh, were increasing into the 70s and the 80s. A lot of them are now receding. Uh, even, uh, you know, expected um, lifespan is is uh, starting to edge downward. So again, as you say, it's it's an eye of the beholder kind of thing. As you were you were talking about this uptick since the Renaissance, I was thinking, um, that's that's kind of seen from a European perspective. I'm sure that's accurate, but seen from many other parts of the planet, that's probably not so accurate. Well, and again, it depends on, on how you define it, because the way you just defined it from an economic standpoint, um, you're taking a mass of society and saying, OK, within this mass, uh, when you say, for example, people aren't doing well as their parents, well, that's a percentage of the population that isn't. But some people are. On, a, on an individual level, we've got people going better and worse. When I, when I think about it, and of course these are the terms we use to define what we're saying, so this is my own view, um, I look at it from a, from a technological and, and, and building standpoint, maybe you could say. Mm -hmm. If you look at it from an economic standpoint, I don't know that we could notice any patterns over over the long haul of history ever, because those are going to vary from one individual to another. If you're taking a subset of the American middle class, for example, and measuring their upticks and downticks like a stock market, absolutely. I think you see the ups and downs then. But 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 then then you, you stop seeing the giant historical trends and now you're working, I think, within a smaller 
uh, uh, timeline, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You're definitely slicing it up. But you can look at things like um, uh, infant mortality rates, for example, right? Or um, uh, how many uh, active years of life versus how many years in, in a nursing home, sort of, you know, in the end stage. There, there are different, as you say, there are many different ways to measure these things. But I do think it's interesting that we're at this time you know, where for the really the first time in, in recent history, I believe, in, in, the, in North America anyway, that there is this sort of the sense that the wave has crested and it's starting to, uh, to recede a little bit in, in some of these measures. In talking about technology, um, I'm playing with this idea of the difference between the, what's good for the individual and what's good for what I'm calling the superorganism, right? That that human beings are part of something, civilization, that is so much bigger. And so as the civilization can progress, even though quality of life for individuals is receding. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think we see examples of that all throughout history. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that, I think, is a fundamental difference between prehistoric foragers and the agricultural civilizations that arose um, you know, 10,000 years ago or so, where you, you get the, the, the um, rise of this superorganism that is larger than the human scale. That's like the first time we sort of moved beyond the human scale. And uh, yeah, incredible repercussions. Have you studied prehistory at all or you keep it all uh, written history? Well, I, I, I've absolutely studied prehistory. I, I don't know it like I know history, but but part of understanding prehistory is is it, I, I'm a big fan of ancient history, and it doesn't make any sense unless you go a little farther back and see you know the conditions that make ancient history somewhat different than prehistory. I mean, you have to you have to sort of you know what I always liked about history compared to something like math is I found history to be finite and math to be infinite mm. and I had a hard time grasping the infinite but history ends <laughs> this second you know so yeah. we have an end point it's constantly moving but I can get my mind around an end point the beginning point is what's so interesting because you know in the old days they used to be able to you know the uh, part of what makes the old historians from 60 70 80 years ago so wonderful to read now is they're so much more sure of themselves and happy to go out on a limb and say things you know for them history begins in mesopotamia and it begins with writing and it begins with urbanization now we're constantly moving that timeline earlier and uh, and as i said i would not be shocked if somewhere somehow they find a civilization uh sophisticated writing um that that precedes Mesopotamia. That just happens to be in a very dry place where everybody still is. It'd be fascinating to find out that, for example, in the middle of the steppes of Russia somewhere, they find something that predates that that's been buried in sand forever. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, prehistory is fascinating. Yeah. Are you familiar with these discoveries in the Amazon that they're finding now with this uh, ground-penetrating radar? They're finding all these what seem to be urban centers, it's a perfect example, too. I mean, it's almost a variation of what we were talking about with the, with the ocean covering up a lot of things. Um, you know, it's easy to find uh, ancient Sumeria. You know, it, it, it's out there. It's a giant mound in the middle of a place with not a lot of foliage. Go and try to find some of these ancient Mayan or Toltec or, or, or the peoples that were even earlier than that. Sometimes they're covered by dense jungle. I mean, I imagine that there's a ton of things still in there uh, as yet to be discovered. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess sure. they're finding them every day, so maybe that's a, maybe that's a self-evident point. Yeah, definitely. And and as the technology increases, it opens that stuff up. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, the underwater archaeology that that must just be a mind-blowing thing to be. I you know we started off. You were talking about how you get fascinated by things, and I was thinking how how I mean. It, I could, if I could live 500 years, I can't imagine getting bored as long as I could learn. You know, there's so much fascinating stuff out there. I can't understand people who get bored. I, I don't, I mean, do you, do you get that frustration sometimes? Do you ever? I'm getting a really weird feeling as I'm, uh, as I'm approaching 50. I'm starting to get the feeling that I all, already am starting to see the limits of, of, of what I'm going to be able to discover. So not only do I feel what you feel, I'm already seeing that, that I mean, I'll never live long enough to read all the things I want to read, and I'll never live long enough to, to explore. I mean, there's a bunch of things I would still like to do that, that are far away from what I've spent the last 20 or 25 years creating a foundation for, and I'm not going to live long enough to create another foundation that takes 25 years to try some of those things. And, and yeah, I'm already feeling the limitations. And, and you know, the more, the more you think about it, too, the more you realize how that affected the people from the past as well. One of the questions I always wonder about is sort of the, um, I, I always describe it as a Dracula or a vampire-like situation because the, the thing that always fascinated me so much when I read Bram Stoker's Dracula was not the vampire-like qualities of, of the central character. It was the fact that he was so old and that if you, had, if you were able to encompass the learning, just the learning, not to, not to imagine the wisdom that comes from uh, analyzing the learning, if you could take a person and let them live five or six hundred years and still be essentially in the prime of life— Imagine what an advantage that person would have over all of us. Now, if you imagine that societies in the past had far fewer people living as old as people live now, does the accrued experience of a society with so many more people, with so many more years under their belt, play into things? Does it matter? Um, I have no answer for that, but I constantly wonder about that. And so that's far afield as to what you were talking about. But but I but I already see, you know, if I live another 20 years or 25 years, that's as you get older, you know, that's not that much time. And there's so much out there to read. And there's so much that hasn't even been written yet. I mean, I, I would love to live long enough to see how two more generations of historians approach those stories you and I talked about, whether it's the Mongols or the Nazis or any of those things we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 50. What a 54, 53, I think. I'm old enough that I forget how old I am. That's <laughs> you know, that's starting to scare me too. I'm getting to that point where where you know you always think you're gonna get smarter and better. And and athletes, of course, are far more cognizant of how how your skills will diminish at a young age. But I was rereading one of the Will and Ariel Durant famous uh, uh histories the other day. And he wrote in the preface of the very last book, he basically, it's his life's work. He started when he was a young man in his prime, and the very last one he was writing as a very old man. And he said in the beginning of it, this is going to be my last book because we can pretend that the mind doesn't diminish like the physical capabilities. But he goes, let me tell you, I'm here and it does. <laughs> and and, and, and so, so I'm starting to get that now, too, where you think to yourself, you know, people will say to me, I get your old shows, 
and you used to talk so much faster. And they'll say, <laughs> I like it so much better now that you figured out how to talk slower. And I always tell them, I never figured out how to talk slower. I can't talk that fast anymore. My brain doesn't work that fast. <laughs> it, it wasn't a conscious thing. I'm just slowing down. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's good. Sometimes slowing down is good. We're, we're... I, until it's too slow. Until it's too slow. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you have any opinion on Howard Zinn and the people's history of the U.S.? Yeah, that's a, that's a strong one for me. Listen, Howard Zinn, for people who don't know, Zinn's motivation was to try to write a counterpoint to what I always call, my shorthand word for it is 1950s high school history textbooks. The rah-rah, American flag, sanitized um, sort of history. And and. So, and I think Zinn said this in, in, in the introduction to his people's history, that he was not trying to write a balanced history. He's trying to fill the other side of the scale up with evidence to balance things out. But when you read Zinn, it's profoundly unbalanced. Again, he set out that that, you know, and I fall into this category too. I'll get the same sort of people critiquing me for things and I'll say, well, but I told you ahead of time, you know, what I was trying to do. And they'll say, yes, but what if you're the only history people get? And, you know, it's, it's a good point. If you're reading Zinn as though he's going to be the person you read, you're getting a very one-sided view of things. That was Zinn's goal. Um, so when I read him, I, I do think he's, he's profoundly unfair, but he's not trying to be fair. The facts that he pulls out are true facts. Um, and, and, and yet when you read it, you get this feeling by the time you're done that all these people in his story were evil and that these cultures were awful. You know, I mean, uh, it's the opposite. In, instead of the red men being the savages and the white men being the civilizers from the 1950s history book, the red men are the noble savages and the white men are the rapers and destroyers. And truthfully, what I love about the more modern histories is that they're doing such a wonderful job of reminding you that everybody on all sides of the story are people and they're responding in ways that people tend to respond. But when Zinn wrote that book, that was not the norm. And so I cut him a lot of slack because I understand what he was trying to do. At the same time, when I read him, I find it, I find it difficult personally, but that's my own bias. And, and he's perfectly justified in, in trying to have done what he did. That's a very fair-minded assessment, I would say. I, I'm, glad you, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, um, you know, because one of the things that Zinn was addressing is a point you raised earlier, which is that history, as it's presented to us, is really only representative of a fraction of the top percentage of any given society. Because, as you said, it's the educated, it's which is by definition the wealthy, almost always men, almost always white. So uh, I think his enterprise, which was, hey, let's look at this from the perspective of women, blacks, Indians, slaves, you know, whatever, um, uh, the, you know, the, the poor, uh, was, was an important thing and a, an important corrective. And I think you're right. It's, he, he wasn't setting out to be balanced. He was setting out to create balance in some sense. The other problem is look at the mass of, of – I mean when I try to explain to people um, – that they're interested in history and they just don't know it. I, I do this by pointing out that history is is everything, everything. I mean, if you're interested in dentistry, there's a history of dentistry. If you're interested in motorcycles, there's a history of motorcycles. The problem with that 
is how do you decide if you're writing a history book what's important, right? In the past, in the far past, it's easy to exclude women, for example, because you just don't have a lot on them, right? That's why a diary here or there is so important sometimes, because all mm. of a sudden you can hang a whole history book on, on a good diary from some women in a time period where you don't have a lot of input from women. But as we as we get to the era we are now, I've always said, you know, in the old days, the job of a historian was to search through uh, uh, haystacks and trying to find needles. Future historians are going to have the opposite problem. They're going to have haystacks everywhere they look. I mean, there's going to be everybody's Facebook, everybody's, I mean, there's going to be so much stuff that the historians are just going to be overwhelmed trying to figure out, my goodness, what's important? You know how do we how do we determine what what out of all of this? I'll give you an example. When I was a uh, a news reporter, I did some uh, work on the assignment desk, and I started off in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, there are so many. When you open that file at four in the morning to decide what you're going to cover that day, it is absolutely filled with material. There's more than you could ever get to. And so my job was to go through all this material and go, no, 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 nothing was good enough. And you'd end up at the end of the day with a pile that was worth covering out of the hundreds of things that were in the file. Then I moved to a small market, a little town, and I had that same job, but you'd open up the file in the morning and there would be three things in there, nothing, <laughs> practically nothing. And you had the exact opposite job. You'd have to sit there and go, well, how do, how do I find something? I mean, we're not going to have a newscast that's even a half hour long. And, and th the way it was for me in the small town is how historians, for example, trying to write about some of these very early societies, that's their problem. There's just not enough stuff to, to really form good i mean they're working with a jigsaw puzzle and they have four pieces yeah. and they're trying to whereas in the future you're going to have it's going to be an impossible task to try to figure out how to cull all the material you have to work with and figure out what's valuable and so when we talk about you know history in the past and they talk about this war or that peace treaty or this king those people stand out they were written about it's kind of easy to hang your hat on those in the future, trying—I mean, I don't know that you're going to be able to write the kind of all-encompassing histories that some of us grew up with in the future. They're all going to have to be much more niche and much more specialized, you know, diplomatic history from 2047 to 2051, I mean, or, or history of motorcycles. Or, I mean, they're all going to have to be really small little niches because you're going to have too much material to work with otherwise. Yeah, well, we're already seeing that in social media, right? Absolutely, so absolutely. Look at Twitter, who knows what's important. Well, I remember when we when when the whole internet started, there were a few historians worrying that no one, the people had stopped keeping diaries, and they had said publicly, "What on earth are we going to do in a hundred years without diaries? No, we're not going to have any information on how people viewed the world." And you look at it now, and you think to yourself, "My God, everybody's keeping a diary or the equivalent of it now." Yeah, it's all just publicly accessible. That's right. The historians <laughs> have a lot to work with. Yeah, as does the NSA. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> they may be one in the same down the road. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Uh, you know, talking about the, the the scale of these things, you know, there's there's the question of the volume of information that's available, but there's also the question of the volume of information that was created in the first place. Uh, how? I mean, what was the ballpark figure like? Total population of of Rome? It was like forty thousand people or something, wasn't it? Oh, no. I think uh, – are we talking the city or the empire? The city. I think that the highest numbers I've ever seen, and they're all estimates, I've seen numbers as high as, as half a million. 
uh, sometimes. I think those are outrageous, but it's I don't think it's forty thousand. Oh, okay. and 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 I think just just also trying to figure out what's the urban center versus what would be the suburbs and right and um, and non-slaves, you know, and non-slaves, and 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 part of it too is that is that. You know, a lot of it would be determined by uh, the sanitation at the time or the mm. food supplies or um, I, I don't think they know the answer to that question. I think really? that's a wonderful example of all the all the kinds of estimates that people are forced to make. And, and you know, everybody feels like yesterday they got the definitive estimate and that's how they always feel. And then some new piece of information comes out that, that upsets the apple cart. Yeah. I mean, some of these Chinese cities, for example, during the Mongol era, if the historians of today are right, they're so huge, you can't imagine how they handled things like sanitation and all that. That's the wonderful thing about ancient peoples that, that I think gets lost. And when I say ancient, I really mean, you know, pre-modern. But the fact that they could do what they did without our tools, it's why I don't like the the people who downplay, for example, I mean, who'll say something like, I always call them the chariots of the gods people, yeah. who'll say things like, you know, uh, uh, the, the ancient Egyptians could not have built the pyramids, and they'll ba base a whole theory on how they must have had extraterrestrial help, for example, because we couldn't possibly get those measurements that good. They had to have someone from a higher technology, and you think to yourself, well, if they're wrong about that, what they've really just done is denigrate the cleverness of the people back then. Um, the Persians, for example, during the wars with ancient Greece, you know, it's popular to think of the Spartans and the movie 300 and all that kind of stuff. Well, that ancient Persian empire, they were known as the Achaemenids. Those people could put armies in the field of 40, 50, 60,000 people with no computers, with no modern device. I mean, the, the fact that they were clever enough to pull that off, that to me is absolutely mind blowing. And, and, one one of my teachers had, had to remind me once when I was in school, he said, listen, one of the things we have that our ancestors didn't always have is that we're able to build on the knowledge of previous people better than any other civilization, right? You can read the works from 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And he said ancient peoples didn't always have that advantage, although they sometimes did. But they were always as clever as we are now. And I think people mm. forget that. And I think they forget that there are other ways of accomplishing the same goals than we do. I mean, you go and look at Babylonian medicine, which looks practically like witch doctor type stuff to us today, but it was built on centuries of observation and record keeping and whatnot. And so for its day, they were utilizing the best mechanism that they had to accomplish their goals. Obviously, it doesn't stand up to even rudimentary stuff today, but it's fascinating to see how those people got around their limitations. And it shows the innate cleverness, I think, of us as a species. Yeah. And in fact, it could be argued that we're, again, receding. The, the human brain has shrunk in size since the advent of agriculture. I think I about that's 15. not my fault. I hope I didn't play any role in that personal. <laughs> <laughs> Especially among your audience. That's I, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we become dependent, you know, like our body is atrophied. Right. I mean, hunter gatherers are far stronger than than most modern people and, and stature. Uh, you know, hunter gatherers were about six inches taller than the farmers who came directly after that. Again, it it. it it relates to this question of like, is the species thriving or are the individuals thriving? That's not always in alignment. And I think, you know, people forget about that. You're, you're, um, you were talking earlier about how history is everything. And you reminded me of an article. I don't know if you saw it just recently um, talking about how in the South, there's sort of a band 
where, you know, the South obviously voted strongly uh, for the Republican uh, ticket in the last couple of elections. But there's a ban where Obama won counties. Did you read this article any chance? No, but that doesn't surprise me. It's, it's, yeah, well, it was fascinating. So there's this ban, and it runs across like uh, sort of parallel to the the Gulf of Mexico, the coast, but 50 to 100 miles up uh, north. And it sort of runs across several states. There's not a river or anything there. It's not a longer – and the explanation is that 200 million years ago, that was the coastline. And because that was the coastline, there was a huge amount of uh, shells that were deposited there that made the soil now, 200 million years later, extremely rich. So when they were growing cotton in the south, those were the richest plantations. Therefore, they were the plantations that had the greatest number of slaves, most of whom stayed there after the Civil War. And so there's a very high population of black people in those particular counties. So you're talking about how everything's interrelated. It's like, well, okay, the Democrats, or or Obama anyway, won this county because 200 million years ago, this is where the coastline was. That kind of stuff is mind-blowing. You know, it reminds me of of somebody who was trying to explain to me once, uh, and it's a little different, so I'm sorry if I'm, I guess your show allows for tangents, but, but, uh, but, but they were talking to me about how astrology, Western astrology might might be true, and he wasn't talking about um, the 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 horoscope in your paper or the ability to predict the future. He was talking about mainly uh, why does a Aries person seem like they're an Aries person? And I was very skeptical, but he, but his theory was funny. His theory was imagine the kinds of food the pregnant mother is eating because of the seasons when, the, when and, and 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 his whole theory was based on this idea that that if you're eating these kinds of foods in this season you're going to produce some child that's got more these qualities or more those qualities and I didn't buy it, but I remember thinking it was a fascinating sort of theory that he'd come up with about the difference between summer foods and winter foods. And, mm. you know, were they getting this much of this vitamin versus that? And and could people over hundreds of years of observation have noticed patterns that, oh, my gosh, mothers who were eating carrots during August were producing babies nine months later that were this way? Um, like I said, didn't buy it found it fascinating, though, and thought that it might have other applications. Yeah, and it it definitely, you know, I guess this relates to what we were saying earlier about trying to maintain some awareness of our own bias and and limitations in in thinking about these things, because that that form of thinking that seems to come out of left field actually has a lot of legitimacy there. I believe there is a strong correlation between month of birth and likelihood of suffering from schizophrenia. I've heard something like that, yeah. Yeah, so there's, you know, th- that's interesting. Certainly we know that um, uh, the sort of nutrition that was av- that's available to the fetus uh, before birth is very important in certain stages of development and triggering different um, genes that uh, lead to the... We know that um, someone who suffers from extended famine, that those effects are uh, evident in the grandchildren. Hmm, I mean, there are also, you know, we use until very recently, we thought that, you know, the DNA had to change. Now with epigenetics, we know, in fact, the DNA doesn't have to change because there's a whole suite of 
mechanisms that trigger or don't trigger different genes. So the gene could be exactly the same, but because of the fetal environment or the nutrition that was available at any given month, that gene may or may not be triggered. All sorts of really interesting things. So yeah, just, in fact, what you were talking about, I, what was it? Malcolm Gladwell, I think, wrote about this in one of his books where he talked about how kids born in a certain month where they're where they're not past the cutoff date to be in the next year's batch so they're they're a little bit older than most of the kids in their grade tend to do much better (laughs) i was the opposite so that explains a lot exactly (laughs) (laughs) well you think about it when you're eight right like being a couple of months older than than the average in your group you're going to do better in sports you're going to be you know significantly ahead of the game. It's a huge difference. I yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah, definitely interesting. So yeah, that, that way, I don't know about astrology, but it definitely, uh, that way of thinking can work. What, well, I think, I think it was a person that I always like to use this phrase who, who had, who had shot an arrow and painted a bullseye around it afterwards, try, <laughs> trying to find it, trying to find a way it could be true. But I, but it was an interesting, yeah. I, I've thought many times about that theory as it might apply to other things. Yeah. If at first you don't succeed, redefine success. There you go. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have become successful that way, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You and me both, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, do you, speaking of success, do you have a day job or are you a full-time podcaster? What, I am a full-time podcaster. Congratulations, um, man. I, I, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I don't know how I could do this and anything else. And I'm not sure that's because the job is so incredibly intense or or I myself am so unable to multitask. But I think this is the only way I could do this. Yeah. Why? Because you wouldn't get enough I just, sponsors? You know, it's like, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm getting a lot of people who are who are throwing opportunities my way because of the podcast. I think when you whenever you get a halfway decent sized audience, yeah. people see that as a way to oh, you should write a book. You have all these listeners already, they'll buy the book, it'll work out great. But I can't figure out how to write a book and do the podcast. I can't figure out, you know, I mean, I'm one of those people where I'm working uh, on this podcast. That's all I can think. I'm, I have two podcasts, as you may know, and I, I can't figure out how to balance the two of them. My wife can do 75 things in a day, and I can hardly do one. Yeah. There's got to be an evolution. I heard, I heard Sir Ken Robinson talk about that once, where he said it was a was an evolutionary thing. And when you think about the fact that I don't think if women couldn't do a bazillion things, I don't think they'd get anything done because I think the children would simply keep, I mean, if I had to take care of the kid, that's all I could do. Whereas my wife can take care of the kid and do 50 other things. I'm in shock just watching her and I can't do anything like that. Maybe it's because I was younger by six months than everyone in my class. That's probably, uh, and you're an Aries. (laughs) But I'm not, but okay. Might have helped me if I was. You seem like one. That's what matters. I was a Scorpio. (laughs) You know, the, the, the one that really makes no sense to me is the Chinese horoscope. I'm a snake in that. I'm a tiger. But it's like... And my wife's a rat. And, and in our relationship, that sort of makes sense because she's my always... My wife's a rat, too, and I'm a snake, so it makes sense, too. <laughs> yeah, but Isn't I... it funny that we know that, Christopher? <laughs> it is funny. Well, my... We don't believe it, but we know it. My wife is is more of a scientist than I'll ever be. She's a psychiatrist. She's, you know, very... Has a huge rational capacity. But she gets a newspaper. The first thing she looks at is the horoscope. 
And, and you know that in the obituaries, and but you know why? Because that's the one part of the newspaper these days you didn't read the day before. You know, <laughs> I mean, these days I, I half the stories I turn to my wife. I go, I read these three days ago, and the, not the horoscope, not the obituaries. Yeah. Well, I, w- I wish I could say that, but in my wife's case, it's because she's witchy. She's she's a she's a bruja, as they say in Spanish. She's she's more of a shaman who went to medical school, but yeah. People, I, I did a, the hundredth episode of this podcast. I had her on as the guest, which was uh, a lot of fun, very unusual. Anyway, um, I, I wanted to ask you. You're talking about the the workload. Um, I do two podcasts as well, by the way. But so you know, well, I I know, and I'm trying to write a book. Um, oh God! <laughs> yeah, I've blown through the deadline. Some, some somebody I don't remember. Some famous writer said, "I love deadlines. I especially love the whooshing sound they make as they go by." <laughs> I remember that quote. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, luckily, my editor is. He's wonderful. He, one time we were talking about – we were having lunch in New York, and I had already blown through two deadlines. And so I was – you know, like you, I'm developing an audience with the podcast, and, you know, I go on Rogan's show and Duncan and, you know, with all, the whole community that we're both part of, which is very helpful because you pick up listeners, really smart people, and they probably would buy your book if you wrote one. Um, so my, my editor is pretty relaxed, but – I started to make excuses and, you know, look, here's why I don't have the book. And he held up his hand and he said, Chris, Chris, listen, I know a lot of writers need me to pretend I care, but I really don't. <laughs> that is what it's wonderful in a sort of non-caring kind of way. <laughs> exactly. Coldly compassionate. It's, it's the kind of caring every writer wishes for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wish for it, but but then there's the problem of like, well, Damn it, if you're going to be that flexible, I'm never going to get this thing done, you know? Yeah. I'm going to blow through enough deadlines so that you will care. <laughs> I'll make you care. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's funny. Um but but no, my podcast is is uh requires very minimal preparation. Um you know, I I try to interview people I already know I'm interested in. And, uh, you know, who do work that I already know something about. I'm already interested in it. I, I can't imagine how much preparation goes into your podcast. I mean, it, every one of those is – it's not only – it's not only, you know, has all the difficulties of a normal podcast where you try not to sound like an idiot and, you, you know, try not to uh, repeat yourself and all this normal stuff that we all think about. But you have to be factually accurate – I'm just bullshitting with people, but you're talking you you've got professional historians listening, probably resentful of your audience looking for you to slip up. That takes a lot of work. It's like every episode is an oral exam for a PhD thesis or something. And you know, I got to be honest with you. I don't really help myself very much. I mean, what fool decides he's going to do a podcast on the First World War, not a piece of the First World War, not, you know, I'm continually overbiting does that make sense yeah. i mean just just yeah. I, and i mean i'm like right now i'm on the part six of the first world war story and i've decided this is going to be the end because i can't stand it anymore and <laughs> and and it's so incredibly complex and there's and there's so much material i'm, I'm hungering to go back to an ancient uh, topic because there's so fewer you know I, i'm reading 60 70 books now for this totally unintentional i didn't sit down ahead of time and go if i pick this topic i'm gonna have to read 75 but you know i didn't i'm i'm remarkably short-sighted and and i didn't see that coming and and so i i 
I leap before I look on all these things. And here I am trying to now tie together strands that I started 17 or 18 hours of audio ago and the, and trying to release it at a, at a decent timeline. I mean, I've already got people saying any day now, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm nowhere <laughs> near. And you talk about blowing through through deadlines. Yeah. And so, so you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I appreciate the wonderfully kind words, but I feel like I don't deserve any of that. I'm 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 picking. I'm doing a very poor job of topic selections, the way I look at it. But but we've been so fortunate so far with the results. And I have to say, I'm sure there are some historians who hate what I do, but they've been so remarkably kind. And I mm. do want to tell your audience what I tell everyone. I'm not a historian. Yeah. Um, I have a degree, a simple BA. I adore it. I I could have gone on, but. I think I would still be in school. I enjoyed school so much that for me it was like a temptation I had to get away from um, or, or I'd still be there. I mean, academia I found was intoxicating and, and I don't think I ever would have left if I hadn't forced myself to. Um, and then, you know, my wife had a great line the other day. Uh, I had started off as a theater major, if you can believe that, and then switched to history with a focus on military history. And and she said, you know, if you think about it, you've actually found a way to utilize both the theater and the military history. And I thought to myself, there's no way you could have planned that. How in God's name was that aesthetics class I took when I was a theater major ever going to help me in the military history field? And yet here I am utilizing both of those things every day. Mm -hmm. It's funny how fate kind of puts you in those kind of places. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking when you said you had to pe peel yourself away from academia because it was so intoxicating, I was thinking, but here you are. You know, you're holding a class for, I don't know what your audience is, but tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, you know, that's you know what's funny, though? But, but 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 it's funny because I don't. You know, if you look at the very first history shows we did, you you can hear what I had planned to do. I mean, when people say you shouldn't be, and some people do, that you shouldn't be teaching history, I keep trying to tell them that I'm not trying to. I have these weird twilight zone. I mean, you mentioned one of them earlier, that whole Nazi book thing, right? That's what I want to talk about. And and when we did the first few shows, they're like 15 or 20 minutes long because that's all I include. Mm. We assumed that the audience was going to be people who already knew the story. So I was just going to talk about the cool, wicked, wonderful stuff that I like. And it turned out that the audience that liked the work was an unplanned group of people, people that didn't know the story. Mm. And so they kept saying, can you tell us a little bit more about the story so that those Twilight Zone twists that you throw in make more sense? And so that developed organically. I never would have sat down and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell people the story of the First World War. Uh, that's <laughs> In my book, that's delusions of exactly. grandeur, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so it developed organically as, as a foundation to allow me to do these mind explorations that I like to do. I yeah. have to tell you the story for that stuff to make sense. Right, right. That's interesting. So it, you sort of started off just having rants, and and it turned into the rant became sort of a a, a feature of the of what you were doing. Rant might be. I mean, ranting is maybe what I do on the other show a little bit more. But but like on the first episode, we explored uh, a topic that a, a historian in Australia named A. B. Bosworth. Uh, brought to my attention. I was always an Alexander the Great fan, as many people who love history are. I mean, he's got one of those stories that you wouldn't believe it if somebody wrote a fictional book like that. I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but it's true. And and but people get into a little bit of the hero worship thing with Alexander. It's 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 almost impossible not to. 
And so Bosworth gives Alexander the opposite treatment that the Mongols are getting now, mm. because Alexander's always kind of been the beneficiary of a bunch of admiring historians over the eras. The Romans loved him, for example. The Greeks hated him in his own time period, but the Romans loved those real strong guys, and so they sort of lionized him, and he'd been lionized ever since. And A.B. Bosworth was writing these books, still is, I guess, in Australia, saying the man was a butcher. I mean, you know, drop drop the, the rose-colored glasses and understand what you're really talking about here. He wasn't some philosopher king. He's a butcher. And so in the first history show we ever did, I compared him to Hitler because Hitler is a butcher. And I said, now, let's examine motives for a minute. Because if, if what historians have always thought about Alexander, which was that his motivation in general was to write his name. I mean, he was almost like a historical graffiti artist, right? He wanted he wanted the lar- the traditional view, traditional, not not total, but traditional view of Alexander is that glory was what he was after, right? That mm. he wanted to be the biggest historical figure he could be. If that's your motivation for butchery, does that make you inherently kind of a worse person than Hitler? Because as as evil as Hitler was, if you actually read his works, his butchery is a means to an end. And in his mind, his end is positive, right? I got to kill millions and millions of people to create a better world, but it's not to write your name larger in the history books. And so to me, I found that a fascinating thing to just talk about, but we didn't really tell you anything about Hitler or Alexander in that podcast. And so those are the kind of things I like to explore. We've had to up the amount of narrative history that we provide as a, as a, as a way to, to add the window dressing that makes something like that possible to talk about. Hmm. That's fascinating. That's it's really a motives interesting question, stuff. A historical motives, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good and evil, that kind of thing. Well, listen, I've, I've taken up an hour of your time, and I know you're extremely busy, so I don't want to take up too much more. But I do want to ask you the sort of, you know, uh, late night listening to Pink Floyd smoke too many joints question, which is... If you could choose any time and place to live out your life, if you knew you were going to be reincarnated and you didn't have to worry about physical comfort, you know, you weren't going to be a slave or, or whatever, is there a particular place and time that uh, appeals to you? You know, I, the one thing the study of the past kind of really reinforces is is how nice we have it now. I mean, you talked about hunter and gatherer people being bigger and stronger and tougher and all that. Well, they're there that way for a reason, right? They have to be. Uh, the, the times require it. The life requires it. I, I think about myself and I think I, I just couldn't even stand the dentistry a uh, hundred years ago, um, <laughs> at, at the wimp that I am. So, so I definitely think of myself as being very fit to this modern era. I'm the opposite of the hunter-gatherer. I'm, I'm perfectly evolved to deal with 21st century life. And, and I, I wonder if maybe if you gave me the time machine and the dial went in both directions, if I wouldn't go into the future. Mm. And if only because I'd love to know what's hanging under the ocean off the coast of Egypt, and I'm not going to know that in my you know 25 years left to me or whatever. In other words, to, to tie a nice little bow on what we were talking about earlier, I'd love to find out. I want a history book from the future. I want to find out how a lot of this stuff that we're wondering about gets figured out, you know. Um, or conversely, I'd love to drag somebody back from the past into the now and, and or I guess somebody forward into the now and start asking them questions. I'd love a, a photograph of Alexander the Great. I just want to see. And, you know, I, not only 
would I look at him, but like one of the history professors I had always told us, you know, when you're looking at old photographs, notice everything behind the subject. Yeah. You know, notice all <laughs> the little details in the photo. Or if you're looking at combat photos, which, of course, you know, we military history majors did all the time. He goes, look at the eyes. Look at these people and realize what they're experiencing the moment the shutter on that camera was clicked and the circumstances they're in and try to have some of that emotion of that moment bleed through to you through those people's eyes or, or the tautness of their facial muscles or those kind of things. So, um, so that to me is where I'd like to drag somebody from the past now or I'd like to go into the future and, and, and read whatever passes for a history book 150 years from now. Yeah, yeah, that's... I agree with you. In your World War One stuff, are are you uh, dealing with any of the poets, the British poets of World War One? Oh boy, we're getting. Into, I'm getting into that situation I talked about with you earlier, where I've got all these different uh, uh, haystacks now, and yeah. I've got to try to figure out what makes it in and what doesn't. And for those who don't know, World War One poetry is 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 this wonderfully tragic. I mean, it 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 poetic is a perfect term for it because some of these these poems are about the suffering of the troops. Some of it, some of these uh, 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 poets died in the fighting. Um, I mean, it 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 influenced the subsequent 1920s generation intensely, and and I don't think we're going to get to that. I don't think I'm really trying to shoehorn um, the aerial warfare stuff into this episode. It would be a mm. tragedy to me if I didn't get that in. But it's going to be like six, seven. I'm gonna I'm gonna have an audio book here when I'm done. So again. Uh, so I doubt we're going to get to the war poets. If I'm lucky, I'm going to manage to get aircraft in there. Right, right. Not that there's any relationship between the two of those things. Well, there probably is. We just haven't come up with it yet, right? <laughs> Aerial war poetry. <laughs> exactly. One of the great poets of World War II uh, flew in a bomber, uh, Randall Jarrell. He wrote I didn't a, even well. You just taught me so. I didn't even know that they were considered to be great war poets of the Second World War. Yeah, well, he's one of the few. He he wrote a book called the Ball Turret or a poem called the Ball Turret Gunner. Um, oh but, yes, no, I remember that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. He was, and then he became a very important critic uh, who actually brought Walt Whitman back into uh, public into renown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty much forgotten until Randall Jarrell brought him back. Yeah, and I studied when I was studying literature in college. I did a class on World War One poetry that I remember being extremely moving because they were writing some of that stuff in the trenches, you know. Just... And a lot of those guys were really young. I mean, and oh, yeah. and, and and writing in hospital beds while they were recovering from wounds. Uh, and then there were a couple of them. You know, they were in contact with each other. Wasn't it Sassu, uh, yeah. uh, Sassoon? Sassoon and Owen were. Yeah, were, exactly. Yeah. Wilfred Owen and yeah, Sigurd. And, and that's Sassoon. fascinating too. You're right. I mean, I'd love to have gotten into it. But there, there's a whole haystack. I mean, once you do that, people are like, well, why didn't you do more on what's going on in, in Central Africa? I mean, I think we've totally ignored the stuff going on in Africa, which is a tragedy all by itself. If I had been a smarter person at the outset in picking topics, I would have done World War I uh, in Central Africa as viewed through poetry, and it would have been a much easier program, and we'd be <laughs> long through with it by now. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, talking about literature of war, I think World War II really is more about novels. Catch-22 yes. yes, and, and Slaughterhouse-Five. Slaughterhouse-Five is wonderful. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yeah. A, and talk about something that blows your, minds on, on so, blows your mind on so many levels. I mean, I love Vonnegut, but nothing that he's done has quite touched that for me. I mean, Cat's Cradle is good, but, but Slaughterhouse-Five is such a classic. Yeah. Wasn't it subtitled The Children's Crusade? 
I think it was. Uh, what a what a great yeah. piece of good. Yeah. Yeah, he got a little silly in some of his later stuff, but I thought so too. Yeah, but with um Slaughterhouse 5 is just such an amazing book. Uh, somehow he manages to maintain uh, a a humor in it. <laughs> and you know what if any of your listeners haven't read that yeah that that to me i mean there are there are pieces of literature you can go your whole life and not suffer for not having read um you can get through your life without reading the world war one poets if you're not into poetry but but slaughterhouse five is one of those books that boy i i i can't imagine most people who are listening to your show wouldn't like that and it's not a hard read no. and, and it's one of those things i i think about that when i'm doing the podcast because you know he slides forward and back in time so much what what does he call getting uh, stuck in time? Yeah. And, and if you're a history-minded person, that is just so intoxicating, that whole approach. And for those who don't know, Vonnegut was a prisoner of war in Dresden when Dresden suffered its horrific firebombing. And I read a biography of Vonnegut not that long ago. Where he was talking, it was it was the biographer was explaining. I think it was only a year or two before Vonnegut actually died, and he had started a fire by accident in his office, and and nearly died. And he had almost wished the author said that he had because he thought it would have tied a wonderful bow around his whole <laughs> life because he should have died in Dresden in the fire bombing. So he ends up becoming an author who made his name writing about an incident that recalled the Dresden firebombing, and then he himself dies in a fiery accident years later, started by himself. I just thought, you know. Yeah. And as an author, you're always looking for that narrative form, right? Uh, yeah, his mind probably was just searching for the, the out that, that really, you know, it, with a nice exclamation point at the end, and then you write the end, and you're done. <laughs> exactly. Post, postscript from the beyond. Exactly. Well, if you ever do, a, if you ever do a, an episode or a series on literature of war, I, I'd love to consult for you on that. That's... I would now that I know how well you know it. I'm steering totally clear of it. I don't need the angry emails. <laughs> I get enough of them. <laughs> Do you ever you ever read um, Dispatches, the the book about Vietnam, Michael Herr? No, you know I was going to say that the title rings a bell, but I've not read that. It's it's incredible. Um, it's it's I would put it you know up there with the great war books that I've ever read. It's because it's written in the language of the time. It's in this sort of hip, you know, um, the jargon and all. Yeah, that. the jargon. It's like a hippie at war. It's it's really, but not silly, not ridiculous. But so. you know what? You and I are both of an age where we grew up in in the near wake of that. And so for me, I mean, all the Vietnam War books we were reading, and, and really the first wave of those from participants started arriving after the mid-'70s, and they all were like that. I mean, whether it's Caputo's books or any of those kind of things, I mean, they all were in the jargon of the era. I think for people who maybe grew up in the 90s, that kind of thing will seem uh, uh, very dated and, and add add fleshing out the elements of the times. But when I read it, it just sounds like us talking talking in the 1970s again. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It was a rock and roll war, you know, yeah. I and mean, people forget that. So well, Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love playing in the tanks as the tanks went. went I mean, yeah, absolutely. Gimme Shelter. Yeah. 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 Gimme Shelter is one of those. They use that in every documentary because it is so... There's something that's so poignant about it. I, now I can't even listen to that song without thinking of like napalm yeah, exactly. dropping in forested areas. Exactly. 
Oh, man. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for making the time for this. It was nice of you to ask, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Hardcore History, of course, is the, the best-known uh, history podcast on planet Earth. And yeah, We're on, on par to get about three out a year at this pace. <laughs> well, there's a hell of a backlog, so I haven't listened to all of them, and I've been listening to you for over a year now. So Life is too short to maybe devote your life to all that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but a lot of people— yeah, read your Vonnegut. And, you know, a lot of people, I get emails, I'm sure you do too, you know, emails from people who, you know, they clean offices at night or they work in a cubicle or whatever, and they can listen to stuff while they work. It's long haul truck drivers. Oh, you know, it, yeah. It is one of the really, you know, the, and I, not that we should talk about this, but, but one of the reasons that the shows have gotten as long as they have is because people have told me they can handle it. Yeah. You know, I don't know that I can handle it, but they they keep saying, just do it. If, as long as it's interesting, keep doing it. And I hear from these truckers, for them, it could be longer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been on Rogan's show, haven't you? A couple of times. Yeah. yeah. I so, love Joe Rogan. Yeah. So, I mean, you got the first time I went in there, I thought it was a one hour podcast. And two and a half hours later, I was like, what the hell is going on here, Speech man? Feed you all this coffee and then there's no bathroom breaks. I did, <laughs> I, I did six hours with him on two different sessions and you're just like, Man, you get out of there and you're like sweating and yeah. <laughs> then he wants to take a picture and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've seen people in the middle of a, of an episode say, "Hey man, I got to take a piss." And I'm like, "Okay, go ahead." And he'll talk to Red Band or or Jimmy or whoever's in the studio with them <laughs> or they'll just like surf the web or whatever. It's it's hilarious. That may be Joe's greatest qualities, his ability to do 3 hours while drinking the whole time and and not have to use the restroom. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hunter gatherer thing or, or a paleo diet thing. I think I think he's got a catheter and a tank under the table. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? We just need one more camera in the studio, the under exactly. the table cam, and he'd be totally exposed, literally. So, so next time, either you or I are in the studio, we'll have a little hidden a GoPro like on our boot or something. Oh man, I, I wouldn't want to get on Joe's bad side. <laughs> That's though, true. So. That's true. <laughs> That's a good way to get hurt. <laughs> All right, hey Dan, what's what's the name of the other podcast? Common sense. It's the one that gets you angry about politics. You're talking about contemporary politics. Uh, current events and stuff. Yeah, I think we're switching more to current events only because politics just yeah. – it doesn't, it doesn't even get me angry anymore. I think it's just kind of sad. Yeah. And and so maybe, maybe leaning more towards – somebody said to me the other day, it, it's almost sounding like – uh, a history show of very recent history, and certainly without all of the written sources and all that. But but as politics becomes more of a farce, I think that uh, for everyone's sake and my sanity and your sanity included, I think it's it's focusing more on current events and getting me hate mail from all over the world. Oh, good. You, you yes. ever read um, uh, Short History of Progress by Ronald Wright? You know, I have read that, but when did that book come out? Oh, probably 10 years ago. It's a very short book, and he just yes, looks at that. he looks at I don't know, half a dozen civilizations, the Sumerians and the Romans and the Greeks and the, Yeah, I love those kind of books. Yeah, it's a survey and and what he shows is that every single one of them, they're basically organic beings that follow a life pattern and they all go through the same things and you know, you look at what's going on in American politics now, and if you look at it in that context, it's pretty clearly end of empire behavior we're in. It here. is clear, and you know what? I'm glad you because that, and that's what, and people get angry when you say that. But if you look, if you pull the, if you pull yourself 500 years in the future, when all time compresses in an accordion-like fashion, and you look at the history of the United States, we have followed pretty, pretty profoundly. The start off as a republic and move into this imperial thing and watching 
watching the fiction continue with constitutions and i mean the, the amount of secrecy is a perfect example i was just reading a whole big story on the on the current major trade deal that they're working on and no one is allowed to even talk about it you have to sign these papers if you're if you're one of these legislators that you you will never tell anybody what you read and it's insane that the amount of secrecy that you could have in what's supposed to be an open republic but to me, that's just part of the farce. We're only maintaining the fiction that that we're what we were with the with the thinnest of veneers right now, and and it's almost like, you know, there's a, another historian, Charles Austin Beard, had a great line, and he said this years ago. He said to be considered a dangerous radical these days. All you have to do is walk down the street spouting the sayings of the founding fathers, huh. and when you go read those today. They sound so radical yeah. that, that and, and yet that's who we are. As Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we are the descendants of revolutionaries. And yet we're as anti-revolutionary a society now as we could possibly be. And and all over the world in 185 countries your tax dollars pay for. And you think to yourself, you know, if politics is to have meaning, this has to be discussed. And the fact that we can have these political figures who engage in the minutia of politics while never addressing the elephant in the living room, no matter what you're feeling about the elephant is. I never say the elephant should be, be viewed this way or that way. Just talk about it. Right. But that we don't even talk about it is, is enough to drive intelligent people, not just crazy, but away from politics. So when you when you say to yourself, I can't believe that we don't have that out of a 300 million Americans, this is the best we can do for politicians. Realize that the really intelligent, deep thinking people look at that farce and say, why would I be a part of that? No matter whether they're conservatives or liberals or something that you can't even describe with those kind of terms, intelligent, deep thinking, wise people look at that and just say, why? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can I can accomplish a lot more good over here, wherever over here may be. Underwater archaeology. Right. Or Astro at least astrology. At least, <laughs> I, yeah, astrology. <laughs> exactly. All the good astrology uh, politicians. Do you know Frank Zappa's great line about politics? That I'm sure I do. It, what is politics it? Politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial yes, complex. Yes, that's a fun. He, he always had great lines. Like that. <laughs> so, but but you know, I just yeah. finished another book on Eisenhower, and when you read those kind of things, you always you know it's it. If you wanted to talk, and you did about about the devolution sort of of of. I don't know if we were talking about society or people or what have you. Look at the difference in the. Is augustness a word? The augustness of, of, of these leaders. Even people we think of as bad presidents from 40, 50, 60 years ago appear like giants now. Yeah. And, and you look at a guy like Eisenhower, and in this book, he was constantly shutting the, the, the military down when they just wanted another bomber they didn't need or another expedition that wasn't warranted because he, he was a guy who had all of the authority. He could do that. Yeah. And you think to yourself— if we put a guy like Petraeus in there today, instead of being like Eisenhower, he'd be your worst nightmare. He'd be the general that, you know, because he was a general, was like one of these Roman generals. Who was, I mean, it's, it's just, even a Richard Nixon, who was the most morally and ethically challenged president of my lifetime, is a giant compared to the people we have now in terms of the way his mind worked and his ability to take it all in and to move boldly uh, and aggressively when necessary to accomplish big things. I mean, 
It, yeah. it's, and, and the funny thing is, by our standards, I'll hear people say to me all the time, well, don't you think this president or that president did big things? And that's when I'll realize, you know, Obama or Reagan or whoever. And that's when I realize our standards are so low that we're just judging these guys on a curve. You know, if we were judging these guys on, on a timeless, eternal standard, none of the presidents in the past 35, 40 years even, even merits being on the list. Mm. And well, that's what makes a show talking about politics very hard to do these days. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Dan, thank you so much, man. I hope we do this again Better get rid of me, man, or you're going to have a Hardcore History Link podcast yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank thank you very much for making the time. I know you're a very busy guy. Now, go go talk about World War I poetry. Uh, We will. Thank you, man. (laughs) All right. Bye. There you go. If you want to talk about this episode or any others, you can find a community of tangentially speaking listeners on Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T. Just go there and do a search for tangentially speaking one word altogether, and you'll find them. There are, I think, 600 people there or something at the moment. Um, and I, I dip in and answer questions and say hello. And uh, so that's a good place if you're interested in talking about any of these issues. Um, I also want to give a shout out to my buddy McKee in Thailand. Um, he's had a bit of a medical uh, situation and he's powering through it as he tends to do. He's a powerful guy. So sending a lot of love to you, McKee. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I feel like you're all, you're all friends of mine at this point. So really appreciate it. And uh, I'll catch you next week. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Go down
We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.